You're listening to Sermon Audio from Redeemer Church, where we are disciples of Jesus in life together, making disciples. Check out our other media, or to find out more information about our church, visit RedeemerSGF.com. ...that are not their own, still serving under kings and kingdoms that are not the kingdom of God, if you will, or the kingdom of Jerusalem in Israel. And now they've begun to assimilate to a new sort of culture, to a new sort of lifestyle. And it's even noted that some of them began to really kind of settle in and enjoy where they were. Enjoy the riches, enjoy the wealth of where this new Persian lifestyle. And so here we are in the capital city of Susa, which is, I believe, in modern day India or nearby, near the Persian uh, Gulf. And this is a fortified city, meaning it rose above the rest. Its walls were completely surrounding it. It was essentially this impenetrable place, this place that was well-armed and well-guarded. No enemy would dare go to this place because if they did, they had a lot working against them. And so here's the setting. You have this king, this magnificent king with all this power, with all this authority, in this wonderful capital city, and before him are his nobles and his governors. And so his power is mighty. But then you begin to see, really, the vainness of his glory in verses 4-7. through He brings them in for 180 days. He just wants to display his glory. He just wants to show it off. And so for 180 days, people could come in and just view the different things his riches, His glory, His splendor. It says His pomp. All of it is on display for everyone to see. It's, it's kind of like this. Come see how amazing I am. How glorious I am. How rich I am. How powerful I am. In fact, I'll set it up for a whole six months so that everybody has time to come and see it. There's a story I, I picked up. It was written in the San Francisco Chronicle. It says... The Pacific Organ Studios on Clement Street is selling something that might lessen man's insecurity. This was written a while ago. It's an organ called the Chamberlain Music Master, which includes a button that delivers via tape a round of applause of concert hall size. You play chopsticks, press the applause button, and bask in the distant patter of 2,000 paws. Think what that does for the ego. This is a king in Persia, who's wanting the applause. He's setting himself out on display so that people will just applaud his glory. And so he does this for 180 days. He then holds a week-long feast for everyone to come and eat, great and small. And so during this feast, he also had his leaders before him. It, it can be kind of confusing as you read the story, thinking, okay, was he holding a feast for 180 days, or was he holding a feast for just a week? I think what is going on here is that there's a 180 days of displaying his glory, and at the end of those 180 days, you have a week-long feast, which was more intentionally focused. This is a time where the news of the kingdom of the empire were dis- or were shared with the people this is the time where he got to meet down meet with his leaders and talk about potentially new campaigns perhaps trying to take over the greeks in the next few years so you have this beautiful picture of really this endless supply of food this endless supply of drink it's kind of like last week right when we had three food trucks out there 
I don't think ever in my life I've seen children get tacos and then go, you know what, I'm going to go get some wings. And then order wings, eat one of them, and just toss them away. I mean, this is kind of like what, what this was like. All the food you wanted. At, at not your expense, at the expense of the king. Trust me, the bill was high, but we're thankful. <laughs> but that's what it was like. Just come in, enjoy, feast, drink, be merry. But there was a vain ethic in this story. You see it in verses 8 and 9. Where the king essentially gave this edict for no one to drink with compulsion, meaning to drink freely, to drink to personal satisfaction, leading into licentious behavior or provocative behavior. And at this time, the queen, his wife, is having a separate feast. We're not told much of why this is or why she's doing a separate feast at this time. What we see here is instantly the queen and the king are not together. Maybe not on the same team, not on the same page. We are exiles living under a lot of vain glories. And I'm not saying we're subject to these glories, but we live in a fallen and a broken world with a lot of broken glories, if you will. A lot of vain glories. I don't know anyone, any American especially, that doesn't want the power or the glory or the notoriety. Right? We all want it. We all want that fame. Our society thrives off that fame. We thrive off that glory. We're so desperate for it. We'll even do weird things on the internet just to see if we can get that sort of attention. I remember watching this story of a young man, maybe he was 18 to 20 years old, who became famous on the internet because one day he was just bored, I think it was snowing, and he went outside and he laid some food out and a deer came and ate it and he filmed it on his phone. And then he filmed it again and people were like, that's hilarious, hey, we need to keep watching this. And then millions of people kept watching him feed deer outside of his house to the point where... People were paying him crazy amounts of money to keep posting videos of him feeding animals to the point where he was actually feeding them food better than you and I would eat on a regular basis. This guy doesn't care anything about animals. All he wanted was the glory. He wanted his name out there. He wanted the attention. And even if it meant he had to feed animals every single day that he really didn't know anything about or care about. That's the sort of vain glories that we, generally speaking, as Americans, thrive after. We hunger for. We're exiles who are often tempted to stay comfortable in those vain glories. To seek after it, to want it, to desire it, and then to just stay put with it. But as disciples of Jesus, we are exiles living in a world that is not our home. We have to understand that. And all around us are vainglories. So let me ask, do you seek the feast of vainglories? Or do you seek the feast of God's glory? Which feast do you go after? Which food trucks are you running after, right? Of this world or of God? It's so hard, and this is a conviction of my own, it's so hard not to want to jockey for position, 
to be around certain people, to be around wealth, to be around fame, with the hopes that you might, just by jockeying position, you might get a little bit of their glory. You might get a little bit of what they have to bring. Like we all want the hookup. We all want the connection. We all want that glory for ourselves. And we will maneuver our ways in order to get it. And why not? It's comfortable. It's good. It feeds us in a unique way. But we have to be careful that that's not the end goal. That's not what we're ultimately striving for. Those aren't the riches that we are looking for. But that we desire the unending riches of heaven that are available to us through Jesus Christ. He's not pompous. He's not arrogant. He's not self, uh, self-righteous. And so I want you to be encouraged to keep your eyes open to the real glory that is ahead in Christ Jesus. And not to get wrapped up into all the glories of the world that surrounds us. And that is hard sometimes. Sometimes we want what the world has because it's so nice and so good or so convenient or so comfortable. But we have to keep perspective. Vain glories are capable of even turning against you at any moment. You may be on top of the world, but then all of a sudden it could turn against you. We cannot put our hope in this world. God is faithful to us. He supplies us with a greater glory, a greater treasure, a greater wealth. And so we just need to remain faithful. And here's what vain glory produces. It produces or reproduces vain glory seekers. And I'm preparing you because Haman is not mentioned yet, but he is the reproduction of this vain glory. He is a vain glory seeker. That's the whole motive of Haman, if you will. And so as we prepare ourselves for this fuller story of Esther, there's two kind of disciples in life, if you will. There's the disciples of the war, of the ward, of the world, of these vain glories. And then secondly, there's the disciples of Jesus. One of those seeks its own glory. The other gives glory to God. So who are you? Which glory do you desire? The glory of Jesus ultimately keeps us secure in Him. It assures us of of salvation. Or the glory of the world where it's always in the balance. It's never secure. They're never assured. And this is the glory that we see in this story. An insecure glory. Verses 10 through 12. And on the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mehuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, the Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Osiris, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princes her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. And this, the king became enraged, and his anger burned within him. 
an insecure glory. We see the glory, the pomp in the first nine verses and then all of a sudden it's threatened in these next verses. And so this insecure glory of the king can be easily deceived in these in the first two verses, 10 and 11. When it talks about him being merry with wine, if you will, it's talking about him essentially being drunk or being tipsy, having just a little bit too much. And so now the king's interactions, his thoughts, everything are now being governed by a false sense of reality. He's, he's feeling a little bit more confident in his pompous, arrogant stance. And so now his drunkenness is deceiving his glory to think that he can easily demand the violation of the queen. And so when the queen is kind of like, oh yeah, guys, I know, have you seen my wife? Let me just bring her out here so that I can show her off to all of you and you can just have a nice little look, if you will. And that's the idea of what's going on here. It's not just that his queen was pretty or was beautiful, she was, but the idea, and it's even argued that some interpret that he is arguing that she come out with just a crown and nothing else. The idea is that he bring his wife out, he bring the queen out, so that all of the drunken men can look at her and lust after her. That's the idea. And so he's beginning to become easily deceived to think he's really got enough power that he can even order this to happen. But then you begin to see his insecurities, his insecure glory is easily outed in verse 12 when the queen refuses to comply with the king's command. And we're all like, yeah, go Queen Vashti, don't put up with this, right? And we're all thankful for that. But then it begins to spiral almost out of control. And the king, in his insecure state, it's a how dare you. He becomes enraged, enraged. He says he's burning within. His heart had deceived him to think that he could just do this without question and that she would just obey without question. And so now before the entire world, before all the kings, all the nobles, the eunuchs, the people who are delivering this message, all of his insecurities are now perfectly visible to everybody. He's not so glorious and splendid as he thought he was. So some insecurities expose, cause people to shut down. And other times, it causes people to really double down. And in this case, the king is going to double down. I am the king of Persia. How dare you make me look like a fool? When we, are without, when we were without Jesus, we wanted what pleased us. And we felt entitled to it really at a whim. And we're still tempted with those things today, with those sorts of entitlements under an insecure glory of ourselves. I've been a good person, so I deserve whatever makes me feel happy. We justify sinful behavior. We speak it away. But now, as exiles for Christ, as Christians, as disciples of Jesus, we live under a different glory. Not our own glory. A glory that is not entitled, entitled, but it is 
full of grace. This glory says, I'm filled with the righteousness of Christ and I want to do whatever pleases Him. And whatever my lot in life, I will say, it is well with my soul. So here's the difference that we see. The world uses manufactured power and glory to accomplish what it wants. Whereas the glory of God is not manufactured. It is who God is. The glory of God is wrapped up in who He is and what He has done. His glory is never ending because God is eternal. Our glory then in Him is completely secure. We never have to question it. We never have to doubt it. It's never going to be outed, if you will. Manufactured glories always have malfunctions. There's a part that's always missing. Something always goes wrong. But the glory of God never malfunctions. And in fact, what it's doing, rather, is always producing more glory within us. We are literally, the Bible says, going from one degree of glory to another. And up until this point, most of you didn't even know who this king was. His glory ultimately had an end. Our American culture, we are so prideful. I mean, we love singing about our pride, right? And when any of us are outed, the first thing, our general response is a defensiveness and we become angry and we tend to burn with anger within when anyone dare cross our frame of thinking and our ways of thinking or our own little vain glories in life. I've thought about this. How many of you ever watched, and this is ironic here, but the show American Idol? And you always see those, those outtakes of the, the people who tried and they're awful. And you know they put them on the show on purpose so that we can all laugh at them or all like cringe every time we hear it. And the contestant is singing, and clearly they have no reference of music or the ability to sing whatsoever. And so finally the judges tell them, uh, yeah, you should stop singing. What do they do? Almost all of them flip out. Right? They are all convinced in their own mind that they are good, that they are awesome at what they do. That's the sort of pomp that we're talking about here. That we are so deceived by our own heart to think that we are really glorious, that we are really something, but we're all going, yeah, no, you're not. When we're outed for sinful behavior, when others don't easily and simply com- comply with our sinful requests, we end up throwing fits. How dare you judge me? God doesn't judge me. Only God will judge me for this. The problem with sinners is that we do not like it when people mess with our egos, mess with our pride, or mess with our idols. Don't you dare touch it. And as soon as someone brings the Bible to bear, what we tend to do is like bow up, puff out our chest, and become real defensive. As exiles, we must live in the light of being outed. That's our entire existence. It's always being outed because it's not about us. (laughs) 
Sinners hide in the dark. And they hate when their weaknesses are exposed. The king of Persia is furious that his insecurities are now exposed. But as exiles, we live life in the light and we find freedom when our sin is outed. This is why we don't avoid the community, but engage the community. It's the community that helps us find that freedom to stop living under our own manufactured glory that ultimately condemns us. But to come to the light. What is it, maybe, that makes you most angry? That burns you deep inside? When your sin is outed, are are you angry most when your sin is outed? Or are you angry most when you realize you've sinned against your God? Are you angry most when your sin is outed? Or are you angry most when you've sinned against your God? Which offends you more? It's election year. It's a nice transitional statement, isn't it? And no, I'm not going to talk politics because I have no idea what I'm talking about. But I want to say this. We put an awful lot of stock in who is or is not our next president. Right? Or who is the next governor or senators or, you know, the Supreme Court judge. We put so much stock in the laws and the land and the justice system that we quickly forget that we are exiles. We are exiles. Look, we need to vote our Christian conscience. We need to be people who pursue equity and justice. That's not what I'm... I'm not saying not to do those things. But I want us to not grow worried or fearful that God is somehow absent because certain people or certain policies do not get established. We are exiles. This is not our eternal home. I know we remember four years ago when Hillary lost the election, Trump won. What was all over the news? People just crying, wailing when Hillary didn't get in office. I mean, wailing. Their entire identity was wrapped up in her coming in to save the day, right? But we can't have that sort of mentality and attitude with humans. Our identity is not wrapped up in sinners. Our identity is wrapped up in the one true living and eternal King whom we should be longing for and desiring for. Jesus, come back soon. And so think about this. If God can fulfill His plan through the king of Persia, surely He can work through anyone who is put in office or through any fault, faulty law or system of the land. Surely He can do that. So our hope is not in this world, Christian. Any glory outside of Christ is always a weak glory. Any glory outside of Christ is always a weak glory. So do not be swayed by weak, manufactured glory, but be compelled rather by an eternal, perfectly supreme, 
holy and sovereign glory that cannot be outdone. You have no reason to wail. You have reason to lament, to grieve with hope, but no reason to wail. Your Jesus reigns. And so under the supreme rule of our awesome and glorious God, He allows fools to lead under pretentious glories. And when that's so, we should not be surprised when the world comes against us. And so we see, with pretentious glories, unjust glory. Verses 13 through 22. And so after this, after Queen Vashti completely rejects his command, then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being... Karshina, Shethar, Admatha, Tarshish, Merez, Marcina, and Memukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti, because she has not performed the command of King Assyrus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Memukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but also against the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Assyrus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they will say, King Assyrus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she did not come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath and plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, and let it be written among the laws of the Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Assyrus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she, So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princes, and the king did as Mimukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. An unjust glory. And so you see this vain and insecure glory of the king now results in really a demand for justification. You see that in verses 13 and 15. He calls upon the head honchos to come in who understand the law and judgment or law and justice. These people having prominence, having power, who are well versed in these things. Because ultimately what the king wants to do is to put in law his insecurities. Look what she did to me. We need to put in place before everybody turns against every man in the empire these sorts of laws. And so he demands really justification. And he has the power to justify himself. The power to twist the law. The power to twist judgment. 
so that he can be justified in what he did. And so we, he, we see that as a result of him twisting law in that way, there is really this wrongful conviction that comes as a result in verses 16 through 17. Queen Vashti is now being measured to the king's insecure justice and is now condemned for her wrongdoing. Until the king said so, nobody really understood to what degree her sin was in the kingdom, but then they understood quickly that she has ultimately offended and disobeyed not only the king, but the officials and all the people of the entire empire. This is what Queen Vashti has done. She has completely offended everybody. So there's this wrongful conviction. And he begins, the king does, to act out of fear in verses 18 through 20. You see, his insecurities are so heightened. I mean, is, really, is Queen Vashti really a threat to the kingdom? Is she really a threat to the empire? Right? For all the Star Wars people out there, the empire is striking back, if you will. That's what's going on here. Not one Star Wars amen. I mean, seriously, we live in a... I'm not even a Star Wars guy. I try to relate. Okay. <clears throat> so he demands for justice. And if the law is not passed, there's this fear then that all the women in the land will be just like Queen Vashti, undermining their husbands, undermining governing officials, undermining authority. And so here's the punishment for the queen that she's no longer going to be queen. She's no longer going to allow to be before the king. Now the king is going to replace her with another queen. And so his unjust glory then consumes the land in verses 21 through 22. The king was pleased with the law. He was pleased with it. And of course he was because it benefited him. It benefited how he looked before all of his people. And so of course he was pleased with it. And of course all the lawmakers were like, we need to make this law in such a way that the king will be happy with it. And they did. They formed it in that way. And so now the insecurities of the king are really seen and now they are pressed down. This is the doubling down among all the empire. And so now the king made sure that everyone knew that he is the standard of justice. He is the standard of judgment. It's to him that they need to measure themselves. Here's what we do as sinners when we want to live in sin. We're always seeking opportunity to justify our sin. Always seeking opportunity to justify it. We're always surrounding ourselves with people who would agree with us. Oh, they don't, they don't like what I'm doing. They don't like what I'm about. Well, I'm going to find the crew of people that agree with me and can kind of bolster me up and back me up on this. We always are working hard to spread our justification for sin. Really, it's kind of like the gospel, if you will, across the land. We want everybody to know about this. And that's what we do as sinners. But we are disciples of Jesus. We are exiles. We cannot live in such a way or with such a manner. 
We must not be looking for ways to sin and to get away with it and to justify it. We must recognize that justice is different for us. We don't justify our sin. Our sin has been justified in the blood of Christ. We don't poll an audience to see who will give us excuse for our sin. We are to go to the church family and seek help for when we do sin. We don't press our entitlements upon one another. We repent of our entitlements and we lead others to repentance. We live righteously. We share the Gospel. We spread the justice of Jesus across the land. That's what we do. And as exiles, there may be those over us who begin to demand that we bow to their sinful behaviors and we take them on for ourselves, but we have to decide, will we be loyal to the world or will we be loyal to Jesus? The just glory leads to justice for all. The true and radiant glory of Jesus when lived out among God's people leads to a glorious outcome. The glory of Jesus does not enslave and call people to bow down to His self-righteous entitlements, but calls us to living lives in true freedom and joy. Jesus freely gives. King Osiris' self-glory led to misery for the people, and especially for women in the land. And ultimately, it would lead to just misery for all under His authority. But what about those of us who are under the rule of Jesus. His glory justifies us. It frees us from our sin. It assures us that we are His forever. It does not cause us to be fearful, but to humbly worship Him. It gives us the desire to spread His fame, His glory throughout all the earth. And as it spreads true joy, true peace, true equity will go with it. The king of Persia forced his decree King Jesus shared His glory and we as His disciples are eagerly taking it to the nations. So which are we living under today? The law of condemnation or the law of grace? Are you living under your own glory or the glory of King Jesus? Now it's fascinating. I told you God is not mentioned here, right? We don't see Him mentioned here. We don't even see Mordecai or Esther mentioned in this first chapter. But we still see God at work. These actions, ranging from the pomp and the arrogance and the ego of the king, all the way down to Queen Vashti rejecting the king's uh, decree or command, was all part of God's orchestrated plan to eventually bring Esther onto the scene. You can call this coincidence, but we can call it part of God's sovereign plan to continue to spare His people. Because if you remember, God made a promise to save His people, to deliver His people. And yes, the Babylonians had come in, and they captured, and they tortured, and they killed, but God's people were still spared And yes, there are some Jews in this present time in this book that are in Jerusalem, that are around Jerusalem, that are around the temple, really excited about it. But what they don't realize is that a thousand miles away, that a king is about to be swayed by an evil person to completely do away with all the Jews. 
and it will take this sort of orchestration for God to deliver his people. So this is not a coincidence. This is the sovereign hand of God at work. And this is where God uses the vain glory of a king to ultimately deliver his own people. Whose glory is really in charge here? King Zhao V of Portugal paid almost one-fourth of a billion dollars during the 18th century for the words, Most Faithful King. He paid for those words. In exchange for this exorbitant sum, the king won the right to display these two words, two in Portuguese, in his title. This extravaganza, however, exhausted all the wealth Portugal had extracted from Brazil up to then. And when the king died, having no money in the treasury to bury him decently, a public collection had to be taken for his burial. The glory of Christ does not cost you and me anything. It only costs Jesus everything. Jesus has not had to work hard to make a name for himself and for his glory to live on. Living under vain, insecure, unjust glory is most costly to all involved from the greatest to the least. But the true, secure, and just glory of Christ says, Jesus paid it all from the least to the greatest. And gives real hope of a new day with new mercies and a bright future filled with the brilliant rays of the glory of the Son of God for the ages. So exile Christian. Where is your glory? With whom does your glory dwell? Where is your true home, your true joy, your true hope? May it be not in the vain glories of this world, but in the heavenly glories where your Savior resides.